Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Zachary Wright is Associate Professor in Residence at Northwestern University in Qatar with joint appointments in History and Religious Studies. Wright received his PhD in History from Northwestern University with a dissertation focusing on the history of Islamic knowledge transmission in West Africa. Dr. Wright joins us today on Building Bridges after he gave a talk at ACMCU this past year. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, uh, Dr. Wright. So just a little bit of background for our audiences. You know, how did you start studying this topic and what was really your inspiration for delving into um, the topic that, that you're uh, studying and that you just gave a talk on? Well, it's actually a long story. Uh, it starts in 1997 when I first got an um, undergraduate research opportunity grant from Stanford University where I was studying. And uh so the summer in between my junior and senior year, I got this grant. <clears throat> I had no idea really wanted to do what I wanted to do, just that I wanted to go to Africa like my older brother who had cool experiences and wrote like kind of Jack Kerouac stories of traveling around Africa and doing wild things. So I said, I want to go to Africa too and <laughs> write my own wild storybook. Uh, so when I got to Africa, um, I... I had to have a, a letter of introduction. Um, and so at Stanford, I was in the African-American theme dorm <clears throat> previously. And I had this friend, Sabir Muhammad, um, who's a great swimmer. And um, But he, he his mother knew somebody who um, uh, had gone to Africa. And so he agreed to produce that letter for me. Um, and I ended up going to Senegal um, and to... Uh, and this, I guess, what's considered sort of like a holy city, um, and it turned out that this place was the center, the spiritual heart of uh, of a Sufi community, uh, sixty million plus strong, um, and that the person I was meeting um, was one of the great, renowned Sufis of the age, Layarhamuhu. Uh, he died in two thousand eight. Um, at that time, I had never met anybody like this. It just kind of blew my mind. Um, the depth of his scholarship in many different fields. He had actually previously pursued a PhD um, at Northwestern University that I later <laughs> got, got my PhD from. Um, but, you know, going there and meeting this person um, and, and the sort of things that they were uh, thinking about, uh, not only him, but the entire community, the, the depth of their scholarship. And me, somebody who was always had excelled in, um, in school and, and academia and sort of had that uh, inevitable pride that one gets um, uh, internalized. And then to go there and to see uh, what I consider real scholars <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and then they say, oh, so you, what do you know? And I'm like, well, I, you know, 
I'm a creative thinker. I'm very innovative. Uh, but what do you know? Uh, well, uh, but, um, you know, of course, I still value both um, epistemological perspectives. But, you know, it's really amazing to see um, lived knowledge in practice um, in a West African context. Um, also, the, the beauty with which they represented their religion um, was, you know, I'd known Muslims before. I'd taken courses on Islamic studies um, as an undergraduate. I didn't really be interested in converting to any religion per se, um, but to see the way that these people live the beauty of their religion um, beyond words and their, their kindness and their smiles and the way that they hosted people um, really made an impression on me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, th so then kind of seeing that community in action and then having to go back to America. I was only there for three months the first time. I later spent about three years in Senegal studying total. Um, but then to have to come back to America and confront people's, you know, ingrained stereotypes, both within the Muslim community and outside about, well, what is what are black African Muslims? Um, and, and then to sort of have to unravel that and to explain it for myself um, what I saw in in practice, which is um, this idea of of in you know internalized knowledge of knowledge and being, um, and so then I later on wrote a book to try to explain that called you know living knowledge in West African Islam, which tried to look at how um, knowledge and religious identity can be transmitted uh, in a in a physical presence of of a scholar beyond words. Words are important, of course, whether they're written down or communicated orally, but there was something that affected you um, being in the presence of, of, a, of a wali Allah or a friend of God. So in your talk today, you talked about a couple of things, but one thing that really struck me and something that myself have never really experienced was esoteric science. So for those who may not be familiar with uh, Sufism or, you know, at a broader level, what, what per se is esoteric science and, and how does it relate to Sufism and, and Islam? <clears throat> That's an excellent question. Um, I'm the one, well, me and a few other people are sort of trying to use that word, but it, you know, it, it can be obviously understood differently in different contexts. So in Arabic, we, I just think it's the best translation of the ulum al-asrar, or the science of secrets, sciences of secrets. Um, the point that I'm making in my own writing is that <clears throat> this should not be considered synonymous with Sufism. Um, what we mean by the ulum al-asrar in the Islamic tradition is sort of like um, uh, aspects of Kabbalism and Judaism or you know, where's things that do uh, do things mostly with words, and and it's definitely called a science because it produces replicable results um, for its practitioners, right? So, it's to think about um, the ways in which, if you believe that uh, um, a holy book is is actually revelation from God, that God has now endowed each letter of those books with a certain power. And that there are certain angelic presences which are connected with each letter. And so then you can take those letters and also weigh them. And so that you think about there's a number that corresponds to each letter. Um, and now you can use those. Um, you can represent then the power of the divine word through these numbers, which now can be communicated um, in, you know, form formulas or put into squares even. Uh, so one of the more interesting discussions early on comes from Abu Hamid al-Ghazali in his Munkith Min al-Dalal or Deliverance from Error. And he, in this book, he describes how 
he came to understand Sufism as being the ultimate way of, of ascertaining reality or understanding knowledge. And he gets to the point where he's discussing with the philosophers uh, and he says, you philosophers, and he, he produces a three by three square, uh, what we call a, a magic, a so-called magic square, um, where each side adds up to 15. Some say the 15 is rep, uh, representative of Yahweh in the uh, Judaic tradition. Um, but, and, and then, then this, this um, square, he says, <clears throat> you philosophers believe in this, and you know that if a woman looks at this while she's giving birth, it will facilitate her delivery. He said, if you believe in this, how come you can't believe in the Ilm or the science of spiritual unveiling where we understand God's presence through direct experience? Um, so here, and this gets back to my original point, that Sufism uh, was in dialogue with these forms of esotericism or the talismanic sciences, um, but it's not synonymous. And in fact, Sufis were the first ones to make sure that, you know, or try to be the first ones to make sure that, okay, we understand this stuff. It's not, it's, it, it, it works or it can work, but there, there are limits and there are problems if one's theology or theological understanding is not intact, right? And one can sort of start worshiping the talisman or start depending on the talisman, not realizing that the talisman is just an attribute of God. Um, it's, it's a, it's a secondary cause of God's being able to protect you, right? So the idea was that the spiritual world had asbab or had secondary causes, just like the material world. So if I say, you know, um, Andrew, can you hand me that book? Um, that's no different than me saying to a certain angel or to, to bring me the book or, or to the prophet Suleiman said to uh, Bilkis, the queen of Sheba, bring, you know, to, to, the, to the jinn to bring the throne of the, the queen of Sheba to him. Um, he's not now thinking, I'm not now thinking by saying that you're bringing me the book, that I'm worshiping you, that I believe that um, <clears throat> you have a power that's independent of God. Um, but people get confused when it's in the spiritual world, and they think that if they see a spiritual entity, they have difficulty making sure, that, recognizing that the power of that spiritual entity belongs to God, um, even if it has free will. Yeah, That's a beautiful saying. So, I also uh, um, saw that in, in your presentation today, you talked about this concept of the oneness of being. Seems like you've been evoking a little bit of that in the, in the answer you just gave. Is this oneness of being, was this a concept that was brought about by Ibrahim al-Qurani himself, or was this something that was a part of Sufism prior prior to him really codifying it as, as a concept? Yeah, that's a good question. This idea is very controversial. It should be pointed out in the uh, in Islamic theolo uh, theology. Um, it's most primarily associated with uh, Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, who dies in the thirteenth century of the Common Era, originally from Spain, and dies in Damascus. Um, he himself never uses the word, but the ideas I think you saw in the presentation uh, is alone mujud, be that he, li that he. They're very clearly, even if he didn't say the word, they, he the, he himself very clearly used the concept. Um, so, yeah, the question, uh, the, the, the subject is an old one. Um, it has been controversial. Um, and basically, <clears throat> I think the dominant understanding of Sufism um, was that you had, to, you had to experience it to know what they were talking about. And so even when Sufis like Ahmed Sarhindi and others disagreed with Ibn Arabi, um, you fi if you find, if you look closely, so... Um, Mirdard is this famous uh, 18th century Indian scholar 
who also comes with a Tariqa Muhammadiyah or path of the Prophet um, from his father Nasr al-Andalib. But th the point being that um, he takes the opinions of Ahmed Surhindi. Ahmed Surhindi said there is no Wahdatul Wajud, there's only Wahdatul Shuhud, meaning a unity of the subjective experience. And Ahmed Surhindi said if you put iron in the fire until it gets red hot and you take it out uh, and the and the iron is sitting there red hot and you ask the iron, what are you? And the iron says, I am fire. He said, can you blame the iron? And he said, that's what, that's the unity of subjective experience. And so, but Mirdar, the later Indian scholars say, you know what, Ahmed Surhindi is, he's, he's just trying to articulate the idea so people can understand it, but he's not really disagreeing with Ibn Arabi because Ibn Arabi is also talking about the fact that, yeah, not everybody in uh, subsequent Ibrahim Qurani as well, that the, the fundamental unity of being is not something that everybody can understand or even witness. And so that the under that Wahdat Wujud by that understanding is subjective because not everybody is going to understand it, but it doesn't deny its ontological reality. So another concept that uh, that I came across in your in your talk was axial sainthood. Is this, uh, is this a part of mainstream Sufism, or is this, again, something that came out of the 18th century um, in this, in, I guess I'm only un trying to understand the, the succession of, of teaching? Um, you know, how does one become a saint in Sufism? Is that something that is a part of the succession of, of teaching, or is it something beyond, something more? Um, well, I mean, the first thing to understand about the Islamic tradition and other religious traditions, you have different... <clears throat> um, um, articulations or, de or theological developments <clears throat> um, that, that emerge historically. Um, but all of these developments, um, of course, anchor their understandings in the formative sources, right? So those who developed articulations of sainthood or sainthood is really a bad translation of, of walaya. So walaya in Arabic really means friendship to God or amity or proximity. Um, but the idea of separate sanctifi sanctification of one's person as separate from God would be problematic for the Islamic understanding. But <clears throat> so that's where the uh, idea uh, kind of diverges from Catholicism. Where um, yeah, so um, the point being that you know there are uh, references to walaya in the Quran or to sainthood or friendship with God in the Quran. There are in the Hadith, and there are also references to darajat or um, degrees in the ranks, uh, degrees uh, in the in, in, in the presence of the Lord. Um, there are also, you know, hadith. There's one hadith is very interesting where the Prophet Sallallahu is in the mosque and he's talking with a companion. He said there's a, a person who is about to enter the mosque and it's by him that Allah has mercy on the entire universe. And it's by him, I mean, I'm, I'm not giving the exact words, but the meaning is by him that Allah sends the rain to the earth and enlivens the the dead things and uh, and the person was like who who could that be and, and the person who came comes in the mosque is an Ethiopian man who had his nose cut off um, nobody know nobody knew of him he was a janitor and he used to clean the mosque um, and he, you know so basically there was this idea that um, a person could be so close to God secretly um, that God has mercy on everything around them because of that person's sincerity um, and so the idea of axial sainthood means that uh, there's and this uh, this idea that is you know elaborated um, 
uh, most explicitly, you know, you know, earlier on with Hakim al-Tirmidhi, who dies in 910 of the Common Era. So this is an old idea. Um, and basically, it's basically it's going back to the idea of the amana, which is the trust that God gave to the entire creation, and that the mountains at first refused because of its weight, but human beings took on, but they are unjust to themselves in the Quran, right? Um, so the idea is that <clears throat> God has to create one individual at every time that can hold that imana completely, um, and if that person were not to exist. That, that that person who holds the trust of worshiping God with ultimate sincerity at any time, if that person were not to exist, then the hujjatullah would fall, that the proof of God would fall on the entire creation and would be destroyed. So that person is the one thing now saving uh, the universe from destruction because of their, they, they never waver in their sincerity and commitment to God. Wow. That is, that is a responsibility. So. Wow. Um, amazing. So another thing I wanted to touch on is Gnosticism. And um, this is a concept that is found in other faith traditions as well. Uh, is, is Gnosticism and, and the thoughts that, are, um, that, are, that come from this idea of oneness with God or secret knowledge, I think that's what Gnosticism may transfer for, um, is, a Gnos is Gnosticism, is it something that is uniquely a Sufi um, a practice of trying to find the secret understandings found within sacred text, or is this something that um, either came before or after? Um, just trying to understand how it relates. Well, Sufis themselves would relate this to the um, a, a, an event that's recorded between the Prophet Muhammad and uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who's his son-in-law and the fourth caliph of Islam. <clears throat> uh, he comes to the Prophet, say Salam, and he asks, "What is the meaning?" of the statement of faith, the testimony of faith, there is no God but God. La ilaha illallah. The Prophet looks at him and says, uh, close your eyes and repeat la ilaha illallah three times after me. And so what Sufis say is that that's an, um, an instance where the meaning of the basic tawheed or theology of Islam is communicated through experience. Um, and that's what gnosis is for 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 Sufis, and I'm not sure this is the best translation. Others have argued that it's not. Uh, cognizance would be another, but the word in Arabic is ma'rifa, and it's essentially to recognize, like as in other, uh, as in Romance languages. This is not the case in English. We have two different <coughs> words for knowledge. So, in Fran in French, we have uh, savoir and connaissance, right? So, savoir is some, you, your knowledge of a thing. Connaissance is your awareness of a, of a, of a being uh, or an entity, right? So <clears throat> this is the word. So in Arabic, we say ilm <clears throat> is, is a knowledge of, a, of an objective uh, thing, uh, an observable reality. Um, not that God is not an observable reality, but that the, that the marifa is, a, is an awareness or an experiential knowledge of an actual being, uh, so um, that's the understanding of, of ma'rifa for, for Sufis. That is something that basically this, the idea of God in um, the Abrahamic traditions in, uh, as, you know, in Islam articulated with the 99 names and also the attributes of <coughs> transcendence. So, He's established on the throne. Uh, you know, he's closer to you than your own jugular vein. 
um, how is this rationally possible? Uh, the mind can't comprehend this, how God can be the creator of everything in the beginning and, and predestined everything, <clears throat> but then intimately involved um, in answering the supplication of anybody who prays to him. Um, so these things are important for Sufis. They must be understood, but they can't be understood through um, deductive reasoning. They have to be understood through a, a, a faculty that's greater, which is the heart. And the heart is something now that is the chief organ that hosts gnosis for the Sufi tradition. Right? Um, and the idea is that <clears throat> the heart is like a mirror. Um, that So the Sufis say, um, it happened that the full moon, uh, uh, that I saw the full moon in the purity of my internal being. How is it possible for me to, to contain the like of him? But it happened, just as the full moon shows itself in the reflection of the, of the still pond, although it is far, you know, far removed from the still pond. So this is an idea that the, the heart can reflect and can see the, the, the complete wonder of God. And, and this is, <coughs> Sufis also source this to the Hadith Qudsi, which means a, a holy Hadith that the Prophet said, where God says, I who cannot be fitted, I who cannot fit into the universes, um, can fit into the heart of the sincere believer. And so that's where Sufis start. That's wonderful. So last but not least, as we are at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding, um, do you feel that in your research, some of the early uh, you know, topics or dialogues that are found within Sufism in, in the 18th century and probably before, can they teach us anything today in our societies about Abrahamic understanding and or how to foster positive dialogue between peoples? What, what examples could you say we could pull from 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 the 17th and 18th century? That's a really good question. Um, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, interfaith dialogue can only go so far by thinking about trinity versus unity or um, <clears throat> different understandings of Jesus. Um, in other words, there are, in some ways, insurmountable differences, and in some ways those should be respected, like a, a religion as Timothy Winters of um, Cambridge says, has a right to make an absolutist claim. And if we want to approach interreligious religious dialogue by suggesting that every religion has a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth, then we're actually positing ourselves as the arbiter that's above any one of those other religions. So we have to respect the absolutist claim of any religion. Um, otherwise, we're not sincere in respecting that religion. Um, so what we can do, <clears throat> um, I think, to approach you know, interreligious dialogue and harmony and working together, I think is the key question, is to think about how uh, these religious traditions often have very similar understandings of humanity, right, and, and its relationship to God. So leave the theology aside for a minute and think about how um, people thought about the human condition. Um, and I think that's what's essential in today's uh, modern age that has, you know, whether we know it or not, we're all being subjected to this idea that the human being is somehow some kind of great machine. Um, and it's just, you, once we figure out all the different molecules and how they act, then we can figure out 
how to even replicate the human being, right? Um, <clears throat> so th this idea then is uh, that the, the, the essence of the human condition is this connection to God, uh, con 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 uh, connection to the infinite. And I think that's really beautiful and well articulated in certainly the Abrahamic traditions, but also others. And I think, you know, how Sufis would certainly understand that is that, you know, the nafus, not only, so they talk about the constituent elements of the human being. You have the, you have the nafs, which is the ego self, the animal self. So in, in, in Arabic, you have two words for soul. One is nafs and one is ruh, right? And I think in Judaic, Judaic tradition, it's similar. The idea that you have this spirit of God in you, the breath of God that is somehow divine um, and and connects you to God but in this way we can't really explain or, or we can explain it, but we can't put it into words, right? We can experience it. And then you have an aql is a, is a mind, right? That's a, a rational mind, but the rash, the seat of the rational mind is in the heart actually, right? So. So the uncle is like a muscle, like anything else. You can, like your hand, if your heart is good, you can use your hand for good. Uh, you could use it for bad if your, hand, if your heart is bad. Same thing with your mind. If your heart is good, your mind can be used for good. If your heart is bad, you use your mind for bad things. Um, you have the aql, you have the uh, have the qalb, you have the heart, right? Which is, of course, the, the particular fascination of spiritual purification in addition to the nafs. Um, and and yeah, so you have these ideas of you know, and these are these are elaborated in other faith traditions as well to think about what are the what is the the human reality itself, right? And how do we activate those realities to best um, connect ourselves to God, to best. Uh, and so in Arabic we say the tahqiq al-insaniya to realize the human condition. And I think what's fascinating is that Europe sort of claims to have exclusive ownership over the idea of humanism. But if you look at a word like tahqiq al-insaniya in the Islamic tradition, um, it's that's a, I'm calling that Islamic humanism, right? That's the idea of activating the human condition. Now, humanism in, in, in the Western world now is often disassociated from religious tradition, right? In order to be humanist, you have to um, disassociate the human being from its connection to God or, or from the, its religious implications. And I think there's a way in which we can return to that conversation from the perspective of multiple faith traditions to recognize that no, for thousands of years, um, the human condition was expressed essentially as um, the ability to connect oneself to God. And the lack of that ability essentially renders you no different than an animal. Well, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for taking the time. All right. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter at ACMCU and like our Facebook page at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes. <laughs>